Wow, that was fantastic. Let's thank our musicians. Joel, the conductor. Love it, Joel. Enabling Walt to just be a choir member. How great was that to see Walt up there just singing with the masses. It's beautiful. I also think we should give a round of applause to the parents who listened to these kids play for all those years when it was terrible. Yes. <laughs> That's a lot of twinkle, twinkle little star to get to this point and bless us. So good. So good. We're only reaping the benefits of years of... And it was now wonderful for us. I'm so thankful. And for people like Allie and Laura who can put a team together to put this beautiful decor up there. Just so, so creative. I just love it. I love Easter. I love the celebration of it. How good that Christians around the world are remembering that Jesus is alive. Present tense, alive. He didn't just rise from the dead and die again. He's alive right now. And I'm so, so grateful that that changed everything. We, this morning, are going to look at John chapter 20. So if you, you would open your Bibles to that passage where we hear about the resurrection morning that all four Gospels tell us about, each with their own helpful, distinctive perspectives. John chapter 20 is a precious glimpse into that Easter Sunday morning, the very first one. So as we go to God's Word, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the power, the wisdom, the redeeming grace that the resurrection displays for us. Lord, Jesus rising from the dead shows us who you are, and it shows us who we are able to be by faith in him and union with him. And so we pray this morning that you would work powerfully in us and through us and that you would bring your word home to us in ways that are life-changing. And I pray we would all walk out of here with far more hope than we came in with. And I pray especially for those who walked in here not knowing Jesus as their risen Savior and Lord, and I pray that they would come to know him in that way this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John, chapter 20, verse 1. Love this passage. Here we go. Now, on the first day of the week, all the gospel writers highlight this. Something new is about to happen. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. It's no small thing that it's Mary Magdalene that is the first to find out that the tomb is empty. And on what we assume is a return visit that morning, she's the first to see the risen Lord. One, a woman, who in this time is far as a court of law would be concerned, and giving testimony to prove something, sadly, uh, a woman's testimony didn't carry any weight. But the gospel writers, God doesn't care. Mary shows the kind of faith and love for Jesus that is our example here. 
Mary is a woman who had seven demons cast out of her. She was a woman who knew what Jesus had done for her in freeing her from the powers of darkness and forgiving her of her own sin. And people who've been freed that way and have been forgiven that way follow Jesus faithfully and love him devotedly. And that's who Mary is. And anybody who thinks the Bible has a negative view of women does not understand the Bible or the context in which it is written. Women come through throughout the Bible and most clearly, I think, in these gospel narratives talking about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus come through like stars. Here's Mary along with the other women who alone, along with the Apostle John, are at the foot of the cross. Big Strong Peter's denying Jesus when a little girl accuses him of having known him. The disciples are afraid, cowering in a corner, and the women are there at the foot of the cross. The women are there at the burial of Jesus. The women are there to find out Jesus has risen from the dead before anybody else. The Bible has a very positive view of women. Sometimes it's a little concerning to me how much better they look than the men very often. Not really. It's actually been my experience throughout my life as well but here here is Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb early while it was still dark John loves as an author the light and dark imagery that Jesus ministry is all about bringing us out of darkness into marvelous light and John I think here is again intentionally making sure we know there's a darkness here and probably pointing to the ongoing darkness and the understanding of Jesus followers and of Mary here she's still in the dark Still doesn't understand what's going on. Faithfully going to the tomb, probably with a couple of other women at least here. The other gospel writers tell us. But here John focuses on Mary. She's the hero here who finds out first. Mary Magdalene comes while it's dark. And the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran And went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's the Apostle John who's writing this gospel, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Mary's understanding is still very incomplete. Mary understands that the tomb is empty. The body's not there anymore. But it's dark and she didn't have a flashlight. And so going in wouldn't have been helpful. She could see enough to know the body was gone, but she probably thought it had been robbed. Grave robbing was not an uncommon thing at this time, and it was a severe crime with severe penalties, but it wasn't an uncommon thing. She said, they, maybe robbers, have taken the body. It's gone. And she, so she doesn't go into the tomb. She's still not sure what's going on. All she knows is the tomb is empty and the body's not there. And so she runs back and tells them what had happened to Simon and Peter, these two disciples, two of the three closest to Jesus, Peter having just denied Jesus, now with a glimmer of hope. John, the beloved disciple who was so close to Jesus, he reclined and leaned against him in affection at the Last Supper. They find out from Mary's report, and they run. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. 
Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Throughout church history, there have been lots of interesting interpretations of what's going on with John outrunning Peter. Some people try to have all sorts of allegorical things about John's love and faith and Peter's denial and and maybe the church of John that he started uh, was more prevalent. I think the bottom line reason John outran Peter is age. Or he was just faster. (laughs) There you go. Sorry, I don't have any secrets to reveal. I think he was just younger. I used to go running with Paige when she was little, and I would say, man, this is going to take twice as long as I thought. Now she goes, see you, Dad, and she's gone. I think he was just younger. And he outruns him, but I love what happens next. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. Very Peter, right? If you know anything about Peter, he's not waiting. He's going in. If there are grave robbers in there, we'll figure it out when we get in there. (laughs) He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Okay, this is a very important image. Remember, Lazarus has just been raised just days before. Very different scene then, right? He comes out like the mummy, right? And he doesn't unwrap his clothes. It has to be done for him. He, he, he comes out still bound in his grave clothing. But here, Jesus' grave clothes are there. And the face cloth, the, the head covering, is there folded up, almost in a gesture of, I won't be needing this anymore. It seems what we have here is an image to distinguish Jesus' resurrection from Lazarus's, which is still very fresh in their minds. It seems what we have here is a resurrected body that rises out of the grave clothes. And through the spices and the embalming that had happened, Jesus' resurrection is very different. We have something very different going. We have a flesh and bone body that can even eat broiled fish that he, eat, he does later on in the book of Luke. But we have something very different here. We have a resurrected body. We have a body that appears in rooms of the disciples later. We have one that is not in bondage to life in a fallen and cursed world as he had previously been. We have a resurrected body, which is different and it's mysterious, but it's different. Then the other disciple, John, who reached the tomb first, also went in. And this is important. And he saw and believed. Doesn't seem Peter comes to the same kind of belief as John, or it probably would have been noted. John comes to a kind of belief here that's very important for us to see. He hasn't seen the risen Lord yet, but he's seen the empty tomb. John actually comes to belief in a very similar way to the way we do. I've never seen the risen Lord, but I know of the empty tomb. I know it. I know it historically. I know it as a reality. And so we come to belief in a very similar way to the way John does here. We know the tomb was empty. We know the body was gone. And we know the scriptures that tell us that Jesus will rise from the dead. And what do they do? 
For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that they must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Everybody's running. Everybody's running. Uh, the other gospels talk about them running back. They talk about the disciples on the road to Emmaus meeting the risen Lord and running back and breathlessly coming in and tell them they had seen the Lord. Everybody's running. Running is this image that we see after the resurrection. I love this image of running, and it's reminded me of one of my favorite paintings. Usually when I see Bible stories portrayed, it, I just never feel like it quite gets it done very well. It's not at least how it was in my head, which is all that matters, no. Um, I, I, but there is a painting I love that portrays this passage and it's this one by a, a French artist named Eugene Birdnand and it's Peter on the right and John on the left running to the tomb I love their faces there's so much on those faces oh look at Peter he just denied his Lord is there hope he's saying maybe there's hope for me maybe he's not dead maybe some of the things he had heard Jesus say were starting to come to memory. Maybe some of the things, even in the Hebrew scriptures now, the Old Testament, he's starting to remember that is it awakening him an awareness that maybe the cross wasn't the end. And John is running so concerned. I love this painting. We're going to leave it up. It's just a great picture. They're running to the tomb. This is obviously before John started to blow by him. And everybody's running. Everybody's running now, and it wasn't that way just an hour or two before. No, a better word would not be running, but cowering, struggling, fearful, despondent, discouraged, sad, frustrated, disappointed, bewildered, despairing. Oh, so many words besides running, but now they're running. When do you run? Most of us barely ever do. Every once in a while, I just like to go out and run as fast as I possibly can. I know that's dangerous at my age, but I think it's a good thing to do now and then. It's not as fast as it used to be, but it's as fast as I can go, and there's something good about that, right? I also think it's good to skip, jump rope, other things. But um, run. It, running is an interesting thing. You don't run unless you have an unusual desire to get somewhere. I'm not talking about exercise, but an unusual desire to get somewhere or get away from somewhere or something. You run because you want to get somewhere faster than normal. We were just at a pool yesterday with our kids, and I watched the lifeguards. They were doing an amazing job. And do you know what lifeguards, I'm sure, it was definitely true yesterday, and I'm sure it's true all the time. Do you know what lifeguards say more than anything else? Stop running. Or they were very polite. They said, walk please, sweetie. It was Disneyland, so they got to be nice. But, but yeah, walk, please, sweetie, don't run. Why do kids run at the pool? Because they want to get back to the slide. They want to get back in the pool. They want to go splash their friend. They want to get there, right? You run when you want to get somewhere, and you run when you want to get away from somewhere or something, and usually it's a bit of both. Usually it's a lot of both, isn't it? This running. You know, we run in an unusual way. We run because we have an unordinary desire to get away from something or get to something. 
We run from fear to safety. We run from ignorance to knowledge. We run from confusion to clarity, from despair to hope. We run. In Bible times, running wasn't a common thing people would do. But when they would run, it's because they were running to something and away from something. But even so, the Bible has plenty of running in it. It it got me thinking. I love the whole Bible things that show up. Do you realize how much running there is in the Bible? Very interesting. Evildoers are said to run toward evil. They're not, they're not taking their time. Their feet make haste to get to evil, the Bible says. You could be running after the completely wrong things. Running isn't enough. You need to be running to the right things. Abraham ran from his tent when the three visitors came and he started to understand the covenant better. Elijah outran Ahab's chariot from Mount Carmel to Jezreel and got there ahead of the storm that was going to bring rain after drought. Philip is told by the Spirit to preach the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, so he, of course, runs up to his chariot to do that. Lots of running. Those seeking refuge from this sinful and broken world run to God. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Christians are commanded to run a lot. Run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Run as if you mean it. You're seeking to win the prize. In the end times, we're told that the nations will run to get to the people of God in Israel. So I ask you this morning, what are you running from this morning? What are you running to this morning? The Bible commands us to flee from sin. Are you running from it? It tells us to flee just storing up treasures on earth. Are you storing up treasures on earth? Are you running away from the things you should be running from? Are you running to the things you should be running to? What are you running from this morning? Some of you are running from things that I'm running from. Some of you are running from things you should be running from because they hurt, like fear, sickness, and confusion and disappointment. Are you running from anger? Are you running from addiction, uncertainty about your future? Are you running from harmful or destructive relationships or physical pain or emotional pain or spiritual pain? Are you running from all the bad news in the world? I am. I, I do. I, I, I wish, many days, I wish I didn't know what was going on in the world. Last night when we were sleeping, bombs went off in Sri Lanka and killed over 200 people and injured over 500. Three of those explosions were in churches as people gathered for Easter. Christians serving and and worshiping Jesus are killed. I didn't want to wake up and read that. So what do we do with this? We run from it. We should want to run from it. Do you want a solution to this? Or are you just going to say, oh, it's just how it is. Is that satisfying to you? Yin and yang, there's no good and evil. Yes, there is. And I know deep down you know that. Of course there is. And there's evil in each of our hearts as well. So what are you running from? Just as important a question is what are you running to? 
What are you running to this morning? What are you running to for answers and for hope? Just quick temporary relief? Substances to do that? Just any escape you can find, maybe through something you'll find on the internet? Are you running to your own self-righteousness or your own morality? Are you running to proving yourself before God and other people? Are you running to earthly pleasures that don't last? Are you running to material success that don't last? Are you running to more education? And once I get that, then I'll have everything I need. Are you running to marriage? Or children? Or that internship or whatever it is? What are you running to that will give you the answer, will give you what you think you need? Well, the only thing worth running to isn't a thing it's a person and his name is Jesus and he rose from the dead and he conquered sin and he conquered death and all that you're running from he's taken care of if those things are the result of life in this fallen world if you're running from him that's the very worst thing you could possibly be running from he made you he created who would run from their creator who could run from their creator no one And so who are you running to? Who are you running from? Running to God is the only solution. He's the one. He's the only one who can save you. He's the only one who conquered death and sin. He's the only one who can conquer our greatest fears and enemies. Sin and death and the powers of darkness. And he alone can bring you all you want to run to, which is eternal life and life with him and pleasures forevermore. That's what Jesus brings when he rises from the dead. Did you listen to the words of the song we started with? By Andrew Peterson. Listen to those words again. His heart beats. His heart beats. His blood begins to flow. I don't know what it was like. We have very little detail of the resurrection. Was it a slow and gradual resurrection? Was it a sudden (gasps) breath back in his lungs and heartbeat start? We don't know, but we know the heart started and the lungs filled with air and the body lived again. Jesus Heart beats, his blood begins to flow, waking up what was dead a moment ago, and his heart beats. Now everything has changed because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins, and his heart beats, his heart beats. He breathes in. His living lungs expand. The heavy air surrounding death turns to breath again. He breathes out. He is word and flesh once more. The lamb of God slain for us is a lion ready to roar and his heart beats. He rises glorified in flesh, clothed in immortality, the firstborn from the dead. He rises and his work's already done. So he's resting as he rises to reclaim the bride he's won. And his heart beats His heart beats. He'll never see death again. I know that death is no longer have dominion over him. So my heart, love this, beats with the rhythm of the saints as I look for the seeds the king has sown to burst up from their graves. His heart beats. He's conquered death. That's why he's Lord of Lords. That's why we crown him the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. 
I want to address this morning two kinds of doubt and two kinds of hope. Doubt seems to be one of two kinds of things. Either it's a kind of doubt in our heads or a kind of doubt in our hearts. It's usually, it's always a combination of both. But some of us are wired differently than others. And some of us come in here and say things like, I don't think people rise from the dead. I think there's always a good scientific explanation for it. I just don't believe in miracles. Now, I respect that decision you've made, but I really want to challenge you to realize that that is a belief you come to the resurrection already formed with. And what's it based on? What is your belief that miracles don't happen and people don't rise from the dead based upon? And not only that, you really need to deal with deep historical rationale for the resurrection. We know some things, and even people don't believe the Bible's the word of God or that Jesus is the risen Lord of the universe or the Savior have to face the fact, if they're any decent historian at all, that there was an empty tomb. There was no body to show that he had indeed died and hadn't risen from the dead. We have amazing transformation in the lives of these apostles who had been nothing but cowards minutes before, and now we're willing to take on the word and die for what they had come to believe. That doesn't mean it's true, but it does mean they believed it was true because all but one of these apostles died for what they had come to understand. And John lived a life as an exile and Patmos. He's the only one who wasn't martyred for his faith, church history, history says. How do you explain that? How do you explain the movement that began, that be, began in this moment that changed the world? How do you explain this? Apart from the fact that he really did rise from that, there's really not good reason historically. There's not good reason uh, archaeologically. There's not good reason rationally to doubt this. There's nothing illogical or irrational or impossible about this. God tells us what is possible and he shows us that this is possible. The resurrection is true and it shows we have a risen Savior. You need to deal with the abundant historical evidence of this. Another kind of doubt I want to address is not so much doubt of rationale or reason, but doubt of the heart. Some of you may be sitting there, and I bet this is increasingly true, especially of younger people. You may be saying, yeah, sure, miracles, sure, why not? Even a miracle like somebody rising from the dead, I guess. And I suppose I can even believe Jesus rose from the dead, but who cares? So what? What in the world does that have to do with me? And I want you to realize it has everything to do with you. Because there are two kinds of hope we get to. With Jesus, it really matters to you. Whether you realize it or not, it matters to you he rose from the dead. Why? Because the Bible says that God has appointed a man once to die and then to face the judgment. And he's told us the only way on judgment day to find eternal life instead of eternal death spiritually is to find life in Christ. So God, in the word of God, believes it really matters to you. And my call to you is to understand how much it does matter to you. He's the one who conquers death. And it also should matter to you because I want to ask you, what are your solutions to life's evil and darkness and problems and all the sadness all around us? Where do you go with that? What is your solution to all the trouble we've seen? For Christians, it's Jesus on the cross saying it's finished and saying he's conquered death and sin in his resurrection. He's done it. 
He's accomplished everything we needed him to. And so we get to two kinds of meaning here. Hope, meaning for eternity, hope for eternity, and hope for right now. Hope for eternity. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, that those who are asleep, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. Romans 6 says, we know that Christ has been raised from the dead and will never die again. And what does that mean for you? Those who trust in Christ are described this way. Christ is the first fruits, then it is coming. Those who belong to Christ, we will be raised with him. We'll be resurrected. This terrible, tragic ripping apart of body and soul and death will be perfectly and eternally reunited in hope. And so you have hope for today, not just for eternity. I need both. It's not enough for me to have hope for eternity. I need hope now. I need that hope for eternity to invade my life now. And it does in the way the Bible teaches us to think. You know, the hardest thing in some ways about being a Christian is future hope. But that's what hope is, right? It's something in the future. But in the meantime, there's so much hurt on the way to the hope. And it is, we, we do, we live in between the first resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and then the resurrection we will experience and his second coming when he will make all things new. That's what we look forward to and long for. That's what we're heading toward, and that needs to invade our lives now. There's a pastor from Maine who wrote an amazing treatment that um, I, I came across of the resurrection and the reality of living it out now because... You know, Sunday's the resurrection that we're celebrating today. But on the way home, it feels like Saturday a lot. I, I'm, I feel like before this moment is where I'm living a lot of the time. Where do you live a lot of the time? This pastor from, from Maine, go New Englanders. He's actually originally from San Diego, full disclosure. But um, here's what he writes, this pastor from Maine, about how much it feels like we're living in Saturday and not Sunday even though Sunday's come, but it's not fulfilled yet, so there's so much hurt on the way home. And this is how he puts it. Friday is when your dreams died. Sunday is when God will do more than you could ever have dreamed. But Saturday is seeming eternity in between. On Friday, you miscarried. On Sunday, the child who meets you at the gate will call you mom. But on Saturday, you're selling the crib. On Friday, the test came back positive. On Sunday, the cancer will be extinct. But on Saturday, clumps of hair still clog the shower drain. On Friday, you were served divorce papers. On Sunday, you'll be the bride at a wedding feast. But on Saturday, you sleep alone in an empty house after he takes the kids for the weekend. On Friday, you went out of business. On Sunday, your shop will be full of those who treasure what your hands have made. But on Saturday, you're punching a time clock to climb out of debt. On Friday... Your child was rested. 
On Sunday, he will be what you've always known he had the potential to be. But on Saturday, you look through glass at vacant eyes and press your hand against the barrier and whisper into the phone, I love you. On Friday, you lost your home. On Sunday, you'll be handed the keys to a mansion. On Saturday, you're concealing your grief as you try to make an apartment feel like home for your kids. On Friday, your sin was exposed. On Sunday, the eyes of God will look at you and see nothing but righteousness. But on Saturday, you feel like you wear a scarlet letter like a tattoo. On Friday, she died. On Sunday, you'll see her face, hear her laughter, and feel her touch. But on Saturday, you bring flowers to the graveyard and come home to darkness. Saturday can feel like forever, but it's not. Sunday is forever. That's the truth. It can feel like it's going on forever. It can feel like we can never find the solutions we need. It feels some days like it's unbearable, but Jesus came and Jesus conquered. And this life is living out that hope, not just for eternity, but for today. See, that's the message of the resurrection. It's not just a future hope. It's a future hope that invades the current day. And the reason we gather here like this is to remind us and each other of this hope that is a future hope. And we wait until that day with eager expectation and longing and sing, come thou long expected Jesus. But in the meantime, we live lives of hope and confidence and joy and gratitude even when Saturday feels so long. As the choir comes up, we are going to end with a song that beautifully portrays what we've been talking about. We gather like this to remind ourselves and reinforce what we know is true, that Jesus conquered death. And the, the Bible ends, human history ends with a big question. Who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals? Who is worthy to save a lost and broken and sinful humanity from itself and the consequences of our sin? Who's worthy of that? And for a while there was silence. But then finally, we have the answer. The lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world. And the lamb who rose from the dead and conquered death and sin once and for all and said it's finished and said, I know in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world.